Hearst Ranch beef is 100% grass-fed, free-range, and always antibiotic-free. Our beef will be available in Whole Foods Market's 44 California locations from San Luis Obispo to San Diego throughout the summer beginning June 1st. You can also order our 100% grass-fed beef online as part of a partnership with Larder Meat Company. Visit HearstRanch.com. That's H-E-A-R-S-T Ranch.com. This week on Meet and 3, we bring you stories about how Gen Z is different from their millennial predecessors through the lens of food. My knowledge of alcohol didn't really come from like Bud Light commercials or like Project X. Yeah, and that's my gripe with the platform as well, is that all these DIY videos, cooking videos, they're 20 seconds. What's one food item from your childhood that you wish you could have today? Dunkaroos, because they don't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. Although, the Dunkaroos Twitter was activated again a year ago, so it's only a matter of time. They've tweeted a couple times, it's pretty hype. Listen to Meet in 3, HRN's food news and storytelling roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome cookbook author, teacher, and culinary historian, Anne Willen. In this episode, we'll talk to Anne about her new book, Women in the Kitchen, how female writers help to find American cooking, and we'll hear Anne's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launched the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. While we've talked about mastering the art of French cooking and its importance to generations of home cooks and chefs, we've not really spent a lot of time putting it in historical context. Mind you, during her lifetime, Julia was plenty interested in history. She was an advocate for culinary history as a serious academic subject, something the foundation continues. Julia collected old cookbooks, and she even helped raise money to ensure antiquarian ones were preserved. But Julia was too busy learning and doing to spend time thinking about how she might be remembered in history. When the Smithsonian rang to ask about collecting her kitchen for the National Museum of American History, she famously asked, why would they want that? (laughs) Now some 16 years after, as Julia would say, she slipped off the raft, Writers and academics have been dissecting and parsing who Julia was, what she did, and what she said with increasing frequency. This only goes to show how much impact one dedicated and determined woman had. But Julia is hardly alone among women in American food history who left a significant mark. Someone who blazed her own pioneering trail is culinary legend Anne Willen. Both a Julia protege and close friend, and taught generations of female and male cooks, chefs, and food writers in the French culinary tradition that Julia popularized. In addition to being a revered cooking teacher, like Julia, and has trained and mentored countless leaders in the modern food world, from Stephen Reichland to Kate Crater and Amanda Hesser, just to name a few. An emeritus advisor to the foundation, Anne is the founder of the influential Lavarin Cooking School, which opened and operated in Paris and Burgundy, France from 1975 until 2007. She's authored more than 40 books on cooking, has won multiple James Beard and IACP cookbook awards, including for the Country Cooking of France, and was inducted into the James Beard Foundation Awards Hall of Fame in 2013. Her best-selling La Varenne Pratique is known as the Chef's Bible, 
and remains available as a four-part ebook on how to pretty much cook everything. Like Julia, she was awarded the Légion d'honneur by the French government in 2014. Having lived, taught, and written about cooking around the world, including in France, Washington, D.C., where she was once the food editor of the Washington Star, and California, she has returned to her native England, now living in London. Full disclosure, she's also my mother-in-law, a colleague, and how I know Julia. So today's conversation is very personal for both of us. And joins us to talk about her new book, Women in the Kitchen, the 12 Essential Cookbook Writers Who Define the Way We Eat from 1661 to Today. Welcome to the podcast, Anne. It's a pleasure to be here. So how did women end up playing such a key role in defining American food? Well, women were running the households because they looked after the children. Um, in the very early pioneer days, there was probably only one big open room with a fireplace, uh, a dirt floor, and women were doing everything that happened in that kitchen. So that obviously included the cooking. And it would start, have started uh, with a big open fire and a cauldron and um, very simple stuff. It developed from there when women, or it was developed by the women who could read and write. And instantly you get into a different field because you can write down, um, make memos, write, in fact, recipes, make notes, and then you were just beginning to do a cookbook. Um, the first cookbooks in America were printed in England. Um, the very first one in circulation was probably Hannah Woolley, 1671. The first American cookbook was Amelia Simmons, 1796. Very simple, two or three lines, just a list of ingredients, but it gives a very clear picture of what life was like in an early kitchen. All the ingredients were local. Um, there were some new ingredients for an English-trained cook. Um, there was corn, uh, molasses, a lot of molasses. But the corn was the big one because you started getting cornbread and slapjacks and that kind of thing. Nobody really knows who Amelia Simmons was. She was an orphan. She says so on her title page. Um, and she was in New England. That too is clear from the ingredients that she uses. The recipes are two or three lines, really not much, but it's very much the beginning of an American tradition. Well, I, one of the things I was interested about that you were you were kind of alluding to that one reason it, it ended up being women was they were kind of in charge of the d domestic mm -hmm. sphere. But I, I just wanted to challenge you on that. I know you've written about going farther back in time, the history of, of cookbooks. There's obviously a difference because historically in, in Europe and in France and Italy, the books were not written by women. It, it, you sort of alluded to this. Is it kind of a matter of timing that because America was later, there were more women who could read or write? Or how, how do you account for the difference between European codification of cooking amongst men and American being much more female-centric? Well, men's cooking is very different. It's um, really right from the beginning that we know about um, Taillevant in medieval times, um, who would have dictated to a scribe 
<clears throat> probably couldn't, possibly was literate, possibly not. Um, men were professional. They were paid. They were running usually large households, if one knows about them at all. Women were uh, the centre of the family. So it's domestic cooking. It's food that's grown very locally, possibly, hopefully, if she was any good at it, in the back garden. Um, and it was she who kept the family going while the men were out in the fields or earning money or doing the heavy stuff that a woman couldn't do. And do you think in America, it co the, the ability for women in that role to record their knowledge and stuff was sort of met with this confluence of greater literacy amongst women compared to when Taiwan was himself possibly yes. not even literate? Yes. Amelia Simmons was only just literate. She says at the end of her book, I have asked someone to put these recipes into shape, in other words, edit them, because I do not have the ability to do so. But she certainly could re taught herself to read and write. Um, but quite a lot of women probably couldn't at that date. Goodness, I don't want to make a blanket statement. Yeah, yeah. And yet there's no record of who helped Amelia Simmons, is there? No, none she at all. Doesn't. She was an orphan. Um, she clearly uh, was a very intelligent and go-ahead woman. Um, she's one of the most interesting characters, I think, because nobody knows um, who she was. There aren't any records. Uh, her, the first printing of American Cookery, which is her only book, um, was in Hartford. And thereafter, it was printed in a dozen different places, including New York over the years. So it, it was the first really American work um, to have an influence. But of course, most um, women in any family or the leader of the family would write down her recipes. She would keep something called a commonplace book and in it, she would put household hints and, oh, I mean, it sounds rather dire, how to cure the bite of a mad dog, but the the croup, the high fever, um, just notes about her friend Mrs. Jones's recipe for this and that. I have my mother's. Does your mother have one? She must do. I'll have to check. Yeah. So let, let's take, we've talked a lot about Amelia Simmons, but obviously there, there are 12 women in the book. And I wanted to know that's a, a, quite a distillation down from all the books ever written and, and to some degree written by women. So how, how did you decide to focus? How did you choose these 12? Well, just a few standout and the leaders. Um, and I also chose ones from different backgrounds and different characters. Um, at the beginning, there are very big gaps. Hannah Woolley um, was the first cookbook, printed cookbook by a woman, and it was in um, circulation, but small circulation, in early America. Hannah Glass is the famous one that everybody's heard of. Um, she became dressmaker. She was English. She became dressmaker to the Princess of Wales. She went bankrupt. She was thrown in jail. Um, she's a most wonderful story. 
then it's Amelia Simmons, um, who was, oh, an orphan and nobody knows really where she came from, but it must, as I said, have been New England. Then Mariah Rundle was from a prosperous um, household. She would have had cooks. She had. She wrote the book for her three daughters, and they lived in Bath. Of, of, that's to say, a smart place, a very different approach. She would have been in the kitchen, but she would have had a housemaid and possibly a cook. So she was English as well, but her book was also popularized in the States after Amelia Simmons. Exactly. Then comes Lydia Child, who is known as a feminist and a, a, oh, an intellectual, and sh- sh- her book is part of a big encyclopedia that she created to help women run a house. Um, she clearly isn't very interested in food, but her recipes, she was a very intelligent woman. Um, Her recipes are very good. And where was she writing? She was writing also in New England. In New England. Near Boston, yes. Um, Then we moved to the South. A long time after, Sarah Rutledge, but she's a contemp- yeah, she, she's a contemporary of Lydia Child, isn't she? Yes, she she's actually a bit earlier than Lydia Child. I'm getting in a confusion. Sarah Rutledge was a Southern Grand Dame um, in South Carolina, and she wrote about um, the classic. Um, oh, she came from a pl- and indeed owned. Um, a plantation, and she describes the cooking of New Orleans. And it really has scarcely changed today. Of New Orleans or South Carolina? Sorry, not New Orleans. Charleston, is that Charleston. Charleston. The, the cooking of Charleston. Um, of quite a lot of rice, of course, quite a lot of fish, a lot of food for entertaining because that was her life. She would entertain her, the other grand dame, but also uh, she writes a nice description of how you must always be ready to entertain um, men who turn up, um, husbands, and you must always be ready to welcome people to the house. So they're quite a contrast. So Amelia Simmons was of a much more modest background, and then you moved She to, was a working cook. Yeah. Then you moved to sort of Maria Rundle and Lydia Child and Sarah Rutledge, who were sort of also head of households, just female. Indeed. And Sarah Rutledge would never have, I don't think, but I could be wrong, Stood put up. hand to pot. Yeah. She would have... Um, her cooks would have been black and she would have instructed them in delicious cooking. Quite a lot of cakes, quite sophisticated cooking and very clearly described. And and so you were saying you picked, because uh, we probably don't have enough time, do you want to just yes. mention the rest of the, the 12? So, so yes. they're on record. Then comes Fanny Farmer. Yeah. Fanny Farmer was a teacher. She ran a school. She, um, her book is even nowadays a standard go-to for all sorts of things like Boston cream pie um, and just the basics of New England cooking. Irma Rombar is very interesting because almost Every active cook in America must have a copy of Joy of Cooking. And they tried to update Joy of Cooking um, about 20 years ago. It was a total flop because what the original had absolutely nailed the basic 
aspects um, of American cooking throughout America. And it's the first book to really cover cooking from north to south, east and west and in the center. Well, and I think I'm struck back looking at Irma Rombauer was actually born in 1877. And I, I can't remember when the when did Joy of Cooking first come out in the, after, in the early 30s, I think. So before World War Two. Yes. So, yes, yes. So it's it surprised. I mean, it's a book that's really endured, considering Absolutely. that it's quite an old cookbook, but still considered quite useful in the modern kitchen. Absolutely. And it is if one reads it. Oh, I mean, I used to and still do, look up basics like pound cake, how Americans would have done it and always have. Then came a total change of pace, and that was Julia. Because Julia is nothing to do with American cooking, though she must always, even as a child, I would have thought. I never talked to her about that. Um must have been in the kitchen. But it was when she went to France and started tasting the delicious approach that the French have to cooking, taking great care just to do it just right and simply and the right and the kind of wrong way to do it. And Julia taught Americans how to approach cooking in that kind of way and make it fun and um, an adventure and never mind if it goes wrong because you can always put it right. Very important. Then Edna Lewis is a journey into a totally different world. Um, Edna was black from the south, brought up in the countryside, um, living off the land. She must have been a born cook. Perhaps her mother loved to cook, but anyway, Edna grew up cooking. She just loved it. And she would go out and gather the strawberries in season. And she writes about um, the special meals they would have at the church and for festivals. And um, clearly anything to do with food, just Edna had an instinctive understanding. She was very intelligent. She had a, particularly for a black woman of the time, a very good education. The children had a young man who was a tutor. Um, she moved to New York. Um, she met the same editor as Julia Child. Julia and she shared... Um, what's her name? Judith Jones. Judith Jones. And Judith was immensely impressed by Edna, who was tall and graceful, very handsome, and wore kind of almost tribal clothes and colours. Very interesting woman. And she opened a cafe in New York. All sorts of famous people came. Teddy Roosevelt, all kinds of... Yeah, fascinating. Then you have a totally, totally different um, person, Marcella Hazan, the embodiment of Italian cooking, bringing, as Julia did, though Julia learned French cooking in France, Marcella brought Italian cooking to the domestic kitchen. There would already have been in New York a lot of um, Italian restaurants. And then we end on a totally different note with Alice Waters, who is a leader of back to the land, back to simple cooking, um, 
enormously influential with children and education. Um, knew um, Michelle Obama very well. Um, and is still very much on the go. So that brings us right up to uh, the present. And we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to talk more with Ann Willen about women cookbook authors' pivotal role in American history. Stay with us. I'm Brian Kenny, a board member at HRN and director of collections and archives for Hearst Western Properties. Hearst Ranch Beef is 100% grass-fed, free-range, and always antibiotic-free. I recently recorded an episode of HRN on tour with the division manager for Hearst Ranch, Roland Camacho. We talked about what makes Hearst Ranch Beef unique. Right, so numbers, let's say 150,000 acres, 11, 1,200 finished cattle a year. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of ground. And not that many cattle. So maybe you could break that down for the listeners. We're using almost all of this ground. And it's all being used because our, our, our herds are, are in groups, you know, a couple hundred to 300 head in size. And they're out just ranging and foraging, taking care of the resource. And then we have to find another spot for those um, finished cattle, the ones we'll call fat cattle, so that they can grow to, to the finished phase. So... We cannot put just massive amounts of animal units in small, confined feeding operations, and that's why we don't try to compete with those types of of, of finished beef. It's just a completely different product. It's just both beef, but it's a completely different item that we're selling. For 150 years, the Hearst family has raised cattle on 150,000 acres of rich, sustainable grasslands on California's central coast. Our beef will be available in Whole Foods Market's 44 California locations from San Luis Obispo to San Diego throughout the summer beginning June 1st. You can also order our 100% grass-fed beef online as part of a partnership with Larder Meat Company. Visit HearstRanch.com. That's H-E-A-R-S-T Ranch.com. Welcome back. We're talking to culinary teacher, cookbook author, and historian, Anne Willen, about her latest book, Women in the Kitchen, The Twelve Essential Writers Who Define the Way We Eat from 1661 to Today. So you've given us a really good overview of of the 12 and and why the 12 stood out to you. And actually, I think contrasting how many differences there were between what they wrote about and their different walks of life that they came from. But I, I wanted to ask you about you know, you've written about historical authors before, not not actually focused on women, but mm-hmm. you've, you've written about many of these people before. And then the latter half, I don't know, the last three, four, you knew personally or know personally. So did, did, did you find when you went to go about putting this book together that you discovered new things or what or, or things crossed your mind? Was there kind of a new discovery about these women as authors when you put this book together? When cooks get together, every time you discover something new, not necessarily about the other person, but, um, I mean, when you got talking with Julia, you would think, oh, how strange that Julia does it that way or likes so-and-so. I would have done it another way. And then, of course, you get into all kinds of highways and byways. Edna, I never met. Marcella was difficult. Um, She was slightly grouchy. And so she didn't really like talking to other people about their ideas and their views she was a born teacher. She was amazing. I mean, it was just this little apartment. Um, when I met her, I was writing for a newspaper. And so I was asking her about her life. And so we weren't really cooking. Uh, my, she was a chain smoker. Uh, and um, But once you got her talking, 
about food and, and, and about the highways and byways. Um, and of course, it was Italian cooking. And with me, it was French cooking. She wasn't interested in French cooking, <laughs> only in Italian. So, um, you know, a clear personality um, evolved. Alice is, has always been busy when I, I've met Alice. Um, she came when I was running La Varenne, and she'd just come to Paris. Um, she'd recently opened Chez Panis. She was enormously busy. So I just showed her into what was very small premises, and she listened for five minutes. But clearly her mind was on other things, and off she was going. She is very much a teacher, but in her own kitchen. I think all teachers are that way. They like to do it their way um, and like to teach other people what they feel is the best way of doing it. Do you think that's a commonality of, of the 12 you picked, that they all had a very specific point of view, almost a stubbornness, but that actually in some ways makes for a stronger teacher? That's a very good question. It's something I haven't really thought about. <laughs> but yes, absolutely. I mean, Hannah Woolley, clearly she was writing for her daughters, she said she was, so she was teaching. Hannah Glass um, loved food, and so she wrote about the, the, the dishes and wanted to get across what they should be like. Amelia Simmons, it was writing down what you need to put in things in a very simplistic way, two or three lines. Because I have to say, knowing you, one of your things is that, you know, a love of food, and that was a Julia mm -hmm. thing too, and that you often find it difficult to relate to people who aren't quite fascinated into food. That's right. Except that in this book, several of the women you've noted actually didn't write the books because they love food or eating. And I think that's... Well, uh, well they did, didn't cook, but they, they must have loved eating. Let's run down them. Well, Amelia Simmons was writing as a textbook because she felt, I think, that she had knowledge to pass on to other people who didn't know how to do things, um, notably how to cook with corn. Yeah. And those were the first corn recipes. Well, Mariah Rundle was, again, writing for her family. Sarah Rutledge was writing down the recipes that she wanted her cooks to do. Now, I think it's very possible that the cooks were not literate, um, but these recipes came from her friends. Well, I thought you write that she was in some ways making this book as a helpful guide for her contemporaries and peers, right? Yes, Who must absolutely. have been complimenting the in food fact, they had. In fact, they said to her, oh, do write that down. It would be so useful for us. So her friends encouraged her to write the book. Yeah, it's a nice thought that, isn't it? Well, and then like, can we contrast that? So then, then we leap ahead more than 100 years mm -hmm. to Edna Lewis, who in some ways is writing about similar type of food, of Southern food. She's a bit farther north in Virginia, but, but she's writing right for a totally different audience. And actually, we haven't talked, like, for you, who do you feel like Edna was writing for? She certainly wasn't writing for contemporaries of she Sarah Rutledge. She was Rutlet. sort of writing a diary. I mean, she wrote several cookbooks. But um, she describes the meals that they ate and how they gathered the food. Not all of it, of course. But there's a, a background which makes her books so vivid, uh, a picture of... Um, Edna being black, a different race, 
but a different world living in the depths of the countryside. Um, and I think that she wanted to hold a kind of moment in time that disappeared with the Second World War. Yeah, it was a codification of all these things that she loved and, and maybe even having lived in New York, what it felt like maybe was slipping away because yes. it wasn't well recorded. Yes. And so in and contrast indeed. to Sarah Rutledge, who is kind of writing a guidebook for uh, matriarchs, if you will, that was exactly. that was not what Edna Lewis, in your view, what Edna Lewis was. No, I think she was writing it for herself as much as um, for, for her readers. And a, 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 a New York friend, a woman friend, did help her write at least one of her books. Kind of get going, getting into it. So she was, it was almost a, an evocation of recording an error that she felt could slip away if it wasn't exactly. documented. And indeed had slipped away when she later went home in later years. Fascinating. Yeah, whereas mm. Sarah Rutledge's agenda was it was very different. She was trying to be sort of... Sarah Rutledge's book is just as valid nowadays. It's still the standard book for Southern cooking. I mean, the, the aristocratic. And so how, how, how would cooking. you contrast the content of Sarah Rutledge versus... Edna Lewis, since they, you've picked them both as strongly representative well, of... Well, Edna, um, I'm thinking of her most famous book, um, describes gathering the strawberries and the, and the scent that they had and how they would eat them straight away so as not to lose the, the, the aroma and... Um, Whereas Sarah Rutledge was wrote a book that is still just as valid now, however many years it is ago. And valid why, though? Because, I mean, why? Because these are classic Southern, um, some of them are very, are very plain. I mean, they're pound cake. They're everybody's um, classic recipes. But um, some of them are jambalaya and the, the, the um, rice recipes of the South and quite a lot of shrimp recipes and the, the local things. Because it's sort of a handbook and a codification of those, those recipes. Exactly. And Edna it's Lewis what she herself and her friends um, enjoyed and encouraged their cooks to to make. And Edna Lewis doesn't include those kind of recipes, or how are hers different? Well, it's Virginia, I guess. Oh, so it's not the same necessarily it's southern cooking. It's not the cooking. same food, but it's not, oh, this is Edna's recipe for cooking. Well, it is her recipe for cooking quail, but it's not a recipe, it's quail with grapes. And a lot of people make quail with grapes, but hers is her recipe, and it's kind of different oh, so from other people. Her recipes are more personal and specific, whereas exactly. Sarah Rutledge's, if you want to cook a quail, here's how you cook it. Yes, exactly. And so let's move on to Julia, since we wouldn't be here without, <laughs> without Julia. Julia. And you talked a little bit about why you picked her, but one of the things I want to talk about is how does mastering fit into, as you said, it's not actually an American cookbook, um, at least in it. What we haven't mentioned is that these, all of these people in their day were leaders in their time. Um... That is absolutely true of all of them. So Julia, of course, um, is the leader of the whole American audience in the domestic kitchen, leads them in, into France and French cooking. 
and a lot of the recipes are similar. I mean, when you poach halibut, it's poaching halibut. But the French have kind of rules. That's why I went to France um, from England. If you wanted to learn to, to co- cook right, I'd been teaching at the Cordon Bleu in London, teaching for two years. But when I got to France, to, to the Cordon Bleu and took classes, it was a whole new structure that, that pulled things together. And that's what Julia was getting across about French cooking in America. Well, and I think I think that's what going back to something you started at the beginning. It your point, I think, in writing this book a lot. While you do obviously cover the content, and there's you know selected recipes from the books, it's not as much about which book they wrote and what was in the book. It was about these women's influence from their accomplishments. Yes. That it, it, and is that ultimately when you sat down to say, well. Who, who, which book represents each period in time, how you determine There was it. that, but it had to be a book that had altered the path of cooking either in England or early on or in America. I mean, when you look at each of them, each of them has altered the path of cooking in their time which we could spend quite an, a while discussing but we could also encourage people to read the book and then they would yes. they would they would pick that up yes. in greater detail than we would have time to to cover but yeah no that's interesting and then you also see right that the milestones that you pick start getting closer together as yes, we they get do. to modern times yes so ultimately now having written this, and I think in some ways you wrote it because you you love these women and you love their works and and you just find it endlessly fascinating to to kind of revisit and them. And nobody had established the chain of of each influencing um, influencing the next. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Ultimately, what do you hope readers take away from it? Is that one of the things that? you wanted to kind of also yourself codify this historic connective mm. tissue between these these women? Is that or? Yes, but it, it's the way these women cook, um, of course, has changed kind of radically over the years. But it, it's the way these women think about cooking and use cooking. Alice was a restaurateur. Um, Edna Lewis was all well. She had a cafe, but she did the cooking. Marcella was a housewife. Her cooking was really rather different. Well, very it's Italian, but um, Irma Romba, Joy of Cooking, wanted to be the definitive guide for the middle-level housewife throughout America. Well, I would just stop you there for a second because I think staying big picture, I think you said something key that we've not ever talked about before, that your fascination with these women and why you pick them is about thinking and about intellect. And while they're, as you say, kind of all over the map in terms of... None of them are dumb. Yeah. Well, and, and I think that's often not... Cooking is often associated with doing and, yes. and that sort of skill. And I think it's interesting what you picked out. And some of them were doers in different ways. We haven't, we, we talked a little bit about Fanny Farmer. Obviously, she was as hard a worker, or you might say she picks up in spirit from Amelia Simmons. She was certainly not a matriarch who was just hosting no. luncheon parties. No. But the, the, there is quite a diversity. But that's what you're saying is that the, the intellect that these women brought to it is one of the things you wanted to, to trace. Yes, the ability to express in words on the page what was going on physically in the kitchen. 
And, that, and by no means everyone can do that. I was going to say, and that mm. being a rarer and special quality. Yes. If you don't yes. say so yourself. If I, don't, <laughs> if I do say so myself. All right. Now, I find very interesting um, working with someone who hasn't been trained by me or worked with me. They won't pick out what I think necessarily are the, the salient points and why are we testing this recipe. Yes, possibly going back to my earlier comment that I will, will revisit. All right, after the break, Anne's going to share her Julia moment. Get in touch, send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf and let us know what you think about today's show and share your ideas for future guests. We'll be right back. Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. All right, Anne, I know you spent a lot of time with Julia over the years. No. What's, your, what's your Julia moment? I have lots of Julia moments, but I'll tell you a very quick one. Okay. She came often to the Green Bra, um, and we had a setup in one of the grand reception rooms with damask walls, and, and, and um, we just had a table, and the oven was set at the back, uh, very near the damask, um, and it was set high so everybody could see. And Julia said, well, she said, we're going to do roast chicken, and I have a new way to get crisp skin. And so she um, put her chicken in the oven and it browned and all of that. And she said, no, she said, and she took her glass of water, opened the door, threw the glass of water <laughs> into this oven at full blast, <laughs> slammed the door shut, and she said, there, she said, steam, that's the secret. <laughs> and we all held our breath, because it was only on a dangling wire, you know, from the back. That the water might that the cause water a fire might get through to the yes. that there'd be an enormous explosion. <laughs> well, yes. yes, Julia was fond of elements of surprise, yes. right? Particularly in front she of a was, live audience. I think she's she said, "Oh no, I have a special something before the class," and we said, "Well, but Julia really don't think you should do that." Uh, she was Did determined. she tell you before what she was going to do or not exactly? Not well, exactly. Yeah. And you said, you've said that particularly you taught. So for those who don't know, the Greenbrier is a um, large historic resort in, um, in uh, West, West Virginia, Virginia, White Sulphur Springs. It's not that far from Washington, D.C., but it is in the heart of Appalachia. And Anne used to run a, a, a spring cookery, like a remote Lavaran class. And Julia was a frequent... Uh, you had lots of guest chefs, of which Julia was one. But you've said that Julia used to almost always delight in springing some surprise on oh, on yes. both you, the teachers, and the, the That's students. It. She made me um, castrate the crayfish. That's awful job because they're alive and they're little shrimp-like things, and they're skittering and they have claws skittering all over the counter. And you have to, not very nice, have to take their tail and twist it and pull out their intestine. Well, and Julia, Julia sort of delighted, I think. Oh, Alec, yes, I wasn't going to do it. I yeah. thought nobody would notice. 
Yeah, oh, but no? she delighted in being slightly provocative, didn't That's right. she? I think mm-hmm. Alex Prudhomme has always written that she had this mischievous streak yes, to her did. that I guess part of made her very entertaining. Yes. And did the chicken's skin get crispy? Yeah. Yes, it did. <laughs> and would you recommend this to uh, as a technique to people at home? I have to say I've never tried it personally. <laughs> Yes. Okay. So, so not an endorsed thing, but no. obviously very no. memorable. Yeah. Yes. Unforgettable. Well, thank you for joining us to talk about women in the kitchen. It's always lovely to talk about food. And thanks everyone for listening. If you want to learn more about Anne Willen's life, work, and books, you can go to lavaren.com. It's L-A-V-A-R-E-N-N-E. You'll find her at Anne Willen on Facebook and Twitter. She really enjoys tweeting the most of all. And at LV on Instagram. Her new book is Women in the Kitchen, The 12 Essential Writers Who Define the Way We Eat from 1661 to Today. It's out now from Scribner, a Simon & Schuster imprint. You can ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller. A reminder to also follow us at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks as always to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Selkeld, and our sound engineers at Heritage Radio Network. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. Please remember to give us a review. Really helps new listeners discover the show. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.